how we should respond. Where is God in these kinds of circumstances? How and why could he let this happen? So these are the pictures that struck me, uh, but there are lots of other issues and images of suffering that I could have used, from centuries ago right down to today's news. And more than that, we don't actually need to look to art or media to give us images of suffering. We can find them, can't we, in our own lives, in our own church, in our own experience. And I know that empty words or philosophical arguments don't count for anything when faced with a suffering child, or the reality of war, or the loss of a loved partner or spouse, or the enormity of peak depression, or the heartache of relationship breakdown, or addiction, or poverty, or the loss of an unborn baby, so many other pressures that I know people in this room have had to deal with. So at the outset of today, I want to say I approach today with a particular sense of humility. I am very well aware that there are many of you who have or are experiencing much more suffering than I ever have. And also, there are others here who can offer more practical and, and spiritual insights and help than I can. And I'm also very conscious that these are massive issues that theologians and uh, very spiritual people have been wrestling with for centuries. So I suppose what I'm saying is, please don't expect anything new or profound this morning. Um, there are things that we can say that I hope will be of comfort and help to us today, uh, but I am not going to break new ground. So hopefully, having managed your expectations at least a little bit, let's move on and ask uh, some questions. And I want to start by asking you all a question. You don't need to shout it out, this is not going sudden, but uh, just think in your heads, what is the answer to this question? How would you describe God? In one word, in one word, how would you describe God? So a couple of weeks ago, uh, at Blast, uh, the church's youth group, the kids were asked exactly that question. And the first word that they came up with was big. Big. God is big. Now, they subsequently came up with other words like holy and loving and mighty. But I think actually big is a really helpful word for us when we're thinking about God. God is big. He is great. He is good. And he is in control. And there are lots of reasons why I can say that. And creation itself, doesn't it, teaches us that. It teaches everybody that. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, creation tells us about God's eternal power and divine nature. So I think there are two main reasons that we can be assured that God is great and in control. And the first of those is that the Bible, God's own inspired words, tells us that. And it tells us it clearly, and it tells us it many times. The very first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God created, he designed, and he upholds and maintains. He controls. And then later, speaking to his prophet, uh, Isaiah, God says, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that God makes everything work out according to his will or his plan. So God is big. He exists outside of time and space and matter and anything that we can imagine. He is beyond 
our feeble, human, finite minds to understand. And he is in control of everything. You see that passage in the middle, that uh, quote from Isaiah in the middle, no one can snatch out of my hands. No one can undo what I have done. The word we use for this is sovereign. It means that God does what he wants, when he wants, as he wants, for the purposes that he wants. And it means that no one can stop him. And in many ways, that is a fearsome, a fearful thought, isn't it? But, but, and this is important, the Bible also teaches us that God is good. And that God is love. And that means that his actions, God's actions are not random or thoughtless or meaningless. Far less are they bad or mean or vindictive. So the Bible tells us that God is big and good and in control. But it's not only the Bible that tells us that. Actually, we know it locally from our own experience. And we know it as Christians because we pray. Every time we pray, we'll move on in a minute. Every time we pray, we recognize that God is sovereign. Otherwise, why would we bother praying? We give thanks to God, don't we, uh, for things that have happened in the past. We ask God for things that we want to happen in the future. And we do that expecting, expecting that He can do that. We do that for our most basic requirements, like our daily bread, for example, as Jesus taught us. Or we do it for the more difficult circumstances in our lives. And we even do it in respect of our own eternal salvation. As Christians, we recognize that it is God who brought us to himself. We did not secure our own salvation. He did it for us. And we give him thanks for that. The theologian, Packer, comments that if you're a Christian, you pray. You recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. But when we're not praying, when we're not actually in prayer, we do forget that, don't we? We find ourselves easily sidetracked into ways of living or ways of thinking that don't reflect our real understanding of the God to whom we pray and who God is. Too often in our daily lives, we forget that God is big. You may recall, some of you, a few years back, uh, we did in front of a series that looked at phrases with but God in them. We thought about Noah and we thought about uh, David and various others. But I wonder if sometimes we're more likely to approach this from the other end. God is powerful, but God is loving, but God is big, but maybe we think my problems are too big for God. Maybe we think the situation is too complicated for God. Maybe we think I'm not worthy for God to care about. Maybe I think but God doesn't care enough about me. Maybe I think, but this issue is too small for God to really care about or do anything with. But if God were to answer my prayer exactly, it would cost me too much. 
I wonder if any of these thoughts have ever crossed your mind. I know that at times they have crossed mine. And if so, I wonder if you've been guilty of making God smaller than he actually is. Perhaps the question isn't really whether God is in control. I suspect most of us would probably accept that as a general rule. But maybe the question is whether I am ready to let him be in control of me and of my life. Not just occasionally, not just for some things, but all the time and for everything. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, Without me, you can do nothing. But that does raise another question, a difficult question, doesn't it? If God is in control, what am I responsible for? Am I responsible at all? And the answer is, I think, that God's sovereignty, God's absolute, total control, does not take away from your or my responsibility. The actions that we take, the decisions that we make, do change the course of events, and we are held accountable for those choices and those decisions for our actions. It is really difficult to hold these two thoughts simultaneously, I know that. But both are true, and both are taught by God's divine and inspired words. God's sovereignty, his control, is absolute. But as humans, as moral beings, we are responsible for our own actions and behaviours. And one of the ways we sometimes try to think about this is to imagine God's will to be like a jigsaw puzzle, where he's in control of the edges, or the corners, or some part of it, and we're left to fill in the bits in the middle, i.e. God does something and we do the rest. But that's clearly not possible. You may have heard this before, I do not think it is good doctrine. How can we possibly limit the areas of our lives where God has no authority? It is impossible and artificial. A real understanding of God being totally in control, the sovereignty of God, requires us to believe that God is in control of every detail. Jesus tells us that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without it being the will of his Father. He tells us that God's knowledge of us is so great that even the heads of our head are numbered. I recognise that for some of you that may be more comforting than it is for others. So I think two things are critical to understand when I say that. First, behind God's control, behind his plan, is his knowledge and his love. God is everywhere, he knows everything, he sits outside of time, he can see the end from the beginning, even when we can't. And everything that he plans and that he does reflects his perfect knowledge and his perfect love. So firstly, behind his uh, plan is his love and his foreknowledge. But secondly, we have to understand that we can't put God's will, or indeed our own wills, into neat, tidy boxes. This is a real problem for me. I like to put things in boxes. But God's will and my will do not work like that. We need to hold them together. Don't try and play them off against each other. We are neither completely free agents, nor are we left as fatalistic, helpless robots. Rather, we need to see this from two different perspectives. It's not a question of either God or us. It is more a question of both God and us. How can I explain this? We see this time and again in the Bible. For example, you'll recall that in Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. It's a well-known story that every one of us will know. 
And when Joseph comes face to face with his brothers later, he says, you meant it for evil. You brothers meant it for evil. But God, I pray again, but God meant it for good. The brothers were responsible for their evil action, but God was also working in the same action to achieve his own positive purposes. There are lots of other examples in scripture, but perhaps the most obvious one is Jesus himself. Why did Jesus die? There are many answers to that, but at one level, he was killed by Roman soldiers at the instigation of the Jewish authorities. And that's why Peter says to the Jews in Acts 2, you crucified him. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But in the very same verse, Peter says, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. God is completely and utterly in control. He works through and in the people that he has created and in the world that he has created in order to achieve his own purposes. Yet he expects us to take decisions and make choices that are real and meaningful and for which we are accountable. And I think this is really difficult to accept and it is particularly difficult to accept in the modern world which prizes above everything else individual human autonomy. But I think I've struggled with this. I've come back to the reality that we want to make God smaller than he actually is. We want him to be made like us. We may not say it, but I think actually we think that God's will should really only work in ways that I approve of, whatever that may be. But God is not like that. He is bigger than us. The Bible tells us that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are greater than our ways. There will always be something about God and the way that he operates that we cannot enter into and understand. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God, would he? And God has the right to act in whatever way he chooses. He is the potter and we are the clay. And he can make or break who he wants. But, and this is important, I come back to it again, he is also loving. And so we can trust him that what he does will always be right, it will always be good, and it will always be for his own glory. And that should be enough for any of us to rest in, should not Just rest in the almighty God who is in control. But sometimes it's not, if we're honest. We want to know what God's plan is. And particularly as a Christian, we want to know, what's his plan for me, for my life? I think we have to be quite careful about this. God doesn't tell us that, not in detail, at any rate. And we need to be quite careful about how we look for him to reveal his plan to us. But we do know what his long-term plan for us is. He wants to make us entirely like Jesus. And he wants to bring us to glory. And we know, and this is really comforting, we know that whatever we do, however badly we mess up, God cannot be thwarted in what he wants to do. He cannot be stopped in achieving what he wants to do. So what's the lesson from that? Well, maybe it's quite simple. Maybe we should just relax a bit. Maybe we should just trust him a bit more than we actually do in our lives. Before I go into God, I just want to talk about two other common mistakes that we make when we think about God's sovereignty and his working in our lives. First, sometimes we think that God will only do the good or pleasant things in my life. And anything that's bad, as I see it, must be despite God, rather than part of his plan for me. And I think that is not quite right, actually. And we'll think a bit more about that 
in a moment. But the second trap, and a much worse one to fall into, is that we sometimes think that some suffering or bad thing that happens in my life is part of God's plan to punish me in some way, for something that I've done or failed to do. Friends, do not ever think in that way. God operates in and for Christians on the basis of grace, not punishment. God may sometimes discipline us as a loving father, but he does not punish us. And we are not immune to the negative consequences of our own actions. If we do something bad, there may well be a negative consequence for that. But that is not God punishing us. We need to hold that clearly in our minds. But it does lead us to a second problem that we bump into, doesn't it? Because if God is in control, why is there suffering at all? Why does God allow suffering to be part of our lives? God is absolutely powerful, we've established that. He's absolutely good, we know that. He knows everything, he can see it in advance, he is completely in control, so why does he not just stop bad things happening? Suffering takes many forms, and I think we have to recognise that, and we affect people in different ways. And the impacts, I think, are seldom confined to one person at a time. This is a picture of my niece, Amy. She would be 21 now, but she lived for just nine months, almost certainly in intense suffering, despite the drugs and the medical care. Her parents also suffered, but it was a different suffering. Similarly, the impacts on other members of the family uh, are still evident 20 years later. For me, it coincided with a period where perhaps I came closest to losing my faith altogether, although ultimately Amy was part of what brought me through it, uh, not a cause of it. The point I'm trying to make, I suppose, is that at the moment many of our brothers and sisters here and in the immediate church family are suffering, and they're suffering severely. Bereavement, severe illness, long-term chronic pain, loneliness, challenging relationships, mental health issues, financial difficulties, unable to have children, unemployment, family members who've gone off the rails. Whether we see it or not, and whether we share it or not, pretty much all of us have some kind of suffering in our lives. And in the wider circle of brothers and sisters around the world, as uh, Irene referred to earlier, there is extreme suffering and persecution from war, from natural and environmental disasters, from opposition to people's faith, racial injustice, poverty, so much more. And none of that should be a surprise to us. Nowhere does God promise that as Christians we will be exempt from pain and suffering. And of course, pretty much all of the sufferings, the types of suffering that I mentioned, are not limited to Christians. They affect pretty much all of humanity. Think back to that picture of Alan Kirby that we started with. And that's because the root cause of pain and suffering in the world is sin or evil. Evil is everywhere, and so are its consequences. It's not just present in the big issues, the wars and the suffering of children, it's everywhere. Hannah Arendt coined the phrase, the banality of evil, to describe the way in which people accept and normalise evil into their everyday lives. Evil becomes ordinary and acceptable. And that is not what God's will is. But we know that even as Christians, sin continues to attack us. God's enemy, Satan, and his henchmen 
are active in their opposition to God and to us as Christians. So sin is both prevalent, it's everywhere, in the background, and it is openly active. And perhaps the most extended and classic experience of suffering in the Bible to look at is that of Job. He is held up by God as righteous, and yet God grants Satan the right to persecute him. Without any apparent justification, Satan causes Job to lose his business, his money, his home, his family, his health. And yet, and yet, while God allows Satan to be active, Satan does not have unlimited power. God puts quite explicit limits on Satan's actions. So when we say that God is in control, it is clear that his control includes control over evil and, and Satan. It is clearly not at all the case, as some people might suggest, that God is or was too weak to prevent sin. That is not true. But does it mean that God initiated or created sin or, or evil or suffering? No, of course not. God is perfectly good, and his creation that he made it was very good. An inherently good God cannot deny his own nature. But sin nonetheless entered the world after his uh, perfect creation and it has wreaked havoc in the world ever since. The key point I think here is it didn't take God by surprise because nothing ever takes God by surprise. He foresaw everything and is in control of everything and has a solution to everything. Nonetheless, God allows evil and suffering for a time at least. And for me, that still leaves the question of why. Why did God allow sin in the first place? And why does he continue to allow it? And if I'm honest, I think this is genuinely difficult. In the wisdom of God, he doesn't give us a clear answer to that. The Bible does not give us a clear-cut explanation of that. We have to rest in God's ultimate wisdom, love, and power to acknowledge, as Roman puts it, the depths of riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. But one thing is sure, through suffering we learn more about God himself. We understand more about the depths of his love, not just in innocence, but in redemption. And we see the evidence of his power not just in creation, but in resurrection and in a new creation. Suffering works out to glory, both God's glory and ours. It's not God's end point, it's not his ideal, but he uses it and he allows it. In the end, the conclusion I've reached when I've been preparing for this this week is that some of the greatest theologians ever have concluded we cannot fully explain the problem of evil and suffering, but we can point to a God who understands our pain, and more than that, a God who has entered into our world into his world, to suffer himself alongside us. And that is the cause for worship. And we know that it will come to an end. Our life and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Ultimately, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And you may say to me, well, that's all very well, but what about today? And Christianity doesn't just promise down tomorrow as the politicians would put it. As the hymn writer puts it, perhaps more succinctly, we have strength for today, as well as bright hope for tomorrow. So how do we respond to suffering now? And what we can expect if we know that God not only wipes away tears in the future, but as we read in our passage from Corinthians, we know him now as 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. We don't know him just as a gracious but distant God, which will still be pretty wonderful, but we know him in the nearness of a loving, heavenly Father who cares about us in the detail of our lives. And we can rest in his comfort, in his love and mercy, because we know that God has already solved the problem, solved the problem of sin. If you cast your minds back to just over a half ago at Easter, we thought about Jesus hanging on a cross. We thought of the physical privations that he suffered. We reflected on the crown of thorns, the beatings, the mockery, the unbelievable physical torture that he went through. And we went beyond that. We thought about his sufferings at the hands of a righteous and sin-hating God who heaped upon him the iniquities of the whole world. Jesus knew shame. He knew humiliation. He knew physical pain. He knew bereavement, rejection, betrayal, persecution, mockery, poverty, homelessness, injustice, family sorrow. There is no pain or suffering that you or I can experience that Jesus does not understand and indeed has paid the price for. Jesus suffered in his humanity exactly as we suffer, apart from sin. And more than that, at the cross, he suffered beyond anything that we can suffer. Not just physical suffering, but the full penalty of God's wrath and judgment. And he did it for you and for me. Jesus did it for you and for me, so that we don't need to experience the full awfulness of suffering that is due to us. So looking at Jesus helps us to understand that God needs so much bigger than we are, but he also understands suffering, and he understands our suffering in particular. He is Emmanuel, God with us. To use the words of Stuart Townend, King of Heaven, now a friend of sinners, filled with mercy for the broken man. Yes, he walked my road, and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well. Through the kisses of a friend's betrayal, he was lifted on a cruel cross. He was punished for a world's transgression. He was suffering to save the lost. And thankfully, it doesn't stop there either, does it? With a shout, our souls are free. Death defeated by Emmanuel. When we were back at Easter, we didn't only remember Jesus suffering on the cross, but we also thought about the wonder of his resurrection. He was raised, Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father. And that is why, as we read in our passage earlier, we rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raised the dead. And for me, this has been a really powerful phrase. Grasping the truth of the resurrection is so important to our understanding of suffering. It is the demonstration that the worst suffering of all, the sting of death, has been taken away for the Christian. As our scripture put it, he has delivered us from such a de- deadly peril, that is, from death itself, and he will deliver us again. We know that Jesus is now raised and in heaven, that he's always living to intercede for us, a great high priest who has shared in our worst experiences of suffering himself, and who has given us another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, we look forward to the enjoyment of living together with him in a world beyond 
and he's suffering or pain. But, 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 there's always a but, isn't there? In the meantime, we still feel the practical consequences of sin and suffering. So how do we deal with that? Well, like the psalmist, we protest, we cry out, we lament, we express our grief, we express our sorrow, we express even our anger and disappointment with God. But we do that to God, not about Him. We pray, we wrestle with Him, we acknowledge God's bigness, and we implore Him to act. And that's okay. God wants us to acknowledge Him and recognize His authority and control, and ultimately to learn more about Him and His love and goodness and fatherly care. And for those of us who see the pain of others, we intercede in prayer for them. First member of our passage says, He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. That was the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul's experience, and he needed the help of the prayers of others. And if he did, I suggest that we do too. I encourage you to pray for yourselves, certainly, but also to pray for others. And I also encourage you to go back and re-listen or re-watch Kenny Armstrong's sermon in Benfield on the 9th of January this year. And if you can't remember what he said then, that's even more reason to go back and re-watch it. What else? We pastor, we comfort, we support, we share one another's sufferings, and we sing, we sing together. For me, that's one of the most comforting words that have ever been written are in the hymns and spiritual songs that we sing. Singing can help us express our own feelings, lift our hearts and our thoughts from our problems and suffering to the great God who sits above the angry flood. And as we were talking about last week, we experience and express koinonia, that wonder of community, a church that is part of God's family. We worship together, we pray together, we share together, we rejoice together, we suffer together, we endure together, we stay together. Together, we face these things. We use our own experiences of suffering and of the comfort of God and our own appreciation of the Lord Jesus to help uphold and strengthen one another. When was the last time you were able to use your experience of a relationship with Jesus to strengthen and uphold one of your brothers or sisters? Perhaps, perhaps the answer to the banality of suffering that we talked about earlier is the ordinariness of community. The everyday living together and supporting each other of God's family, often unseen, unappreciated by others, but part of what it means to be a church together. So how do we respond to pain and suffering? We recognise that God is big and good and in control, but we also fulfil our responsibility to act, to express God's love to others, prayerfully, practically, and evangelistically. Because in the end, the best and the only real answer to any problem is to point others to Jesus and to look to him ourselves. He is our saviour. He is our shepherd. He is our friend. He is the leader and completer of faith. He is our great high priest. He is both our current and coming deliverer. Ultimately, the only meaningful answer to suffering is to look to Jesus and to rest in the knowledge that he fully understands our pain, and that we are in his hands for time, for now, as well as eternity, and in both the good times and the bad times. 
The Apostle Paul could reflect, couldn't he, that it didn't matter whether he was suffering or rejoicing. It didn't matter whether he lived or died. All that mattered was his relationship with Jesus. Paul is special, obviously, but others have reached a similar point too. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Horatius Fackers, who lost his son in a fire, lost his fortune, lost his business, lost his four daughters in a tragic accident at sea. And despite his very real and human grief and suffering, he only has become well known to so many. Whatever our circumstances, whether we enjoy peace like a river, or the storms and disruption of intense suffering, we know, we know that whatever happens to us, it is well, it is well with our souls. And we know it because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus, and because we have a powerful and loving God. So the answer to the questions, yes, God is in control. He is big, he is good, he is in control. Praise his name. He is bigger than we sometimes think. But let us remember that. Remember it especially when we're suffering. Let us help one another, and above all, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, resting in his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. We're going to sing in a minute, and we'll sing these words. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest night, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet, not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, our times are in your hands. Whatever they may be, pleasing, or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to be. Father, we give thanks that whatever the circumstances of our life, we know that you are in control, and we are happy that you are in control. We know that you will make a better job of our lives than we could possibly do in our own strength. And we know that you are loving, and your love is supreme, and it has been demonstrated in the most extreme of ways in the death of Jesus on the cross. And you've given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Father, we give thanks for these wonderful things. But we do pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. In particular, we remember Ryan and Jenny. We remember uh, the years of the funeral on Monday. And there are so many others who are suffering in ways that perhaps we do not see. We bring them all to you. Knowing that we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. And in the end, we rest in those words that we sang earlier for this. I am Jesus. We give thanks to Jesus. We thank you for your goodness. And we cast ourselves upon you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just before we say while these issues are coming out, I suppose I should make the point that some of these issues are quite difficult, and the ones that are coming weak will be difficult as well. If you feel the need to pray, or someone to pray with you, and by all means, speak to one of the elders or to Irene as chair of the pastoral group. But also remember, we can pray for one another and with one another. This is, there is no great extra spirituality. I say I can say this. Maybe you can say this. There's no great extra spirituality in the elders. In the church, we have spiritual capacity to support. Let us use one another in that capacity.
Thank you, Joseph.